I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Dolls were meant for children. Teddy bears, Raggedy Ann, Barbie and Ken, even the scariest of the Funko Pops are all about fun and play. So when did dolls get so damn scary? It started with the ventriloquist dummy. It's a weird job wanting to stick your hand up a doll's ass, pull on a cable that makes his mouth move, and then throw your voice convincingly to convince the audience that the little fella on your lap is a living and breathing thing. I had a Jerry Mahoney dummy when I was a kid and tried to learn the process, which was mastered by a guy named Paul Winchell who, when he wasn't doing his kid's show with puppets, helped to create the artificial heart. But even then, I started to realize that these little toys could get pretty creepy. The first scary doll movie that I know of is an early talkie called The Great Gabbo, dating back to 1929, and it starred Eric von Stroheim as a psychologically damaged ventriloquist who started to believe that his dummy Otto itself was a living, breathing creature and was rebelling on his tuxedoed master and taking control of the act and von Stroheim's life in the process. Gabo was the monster, however, and it was only through Otto that he could express what might be construed as kindness to others. One of the first genre anthologies was Dead of Night, a British movie from 1947 that featured, among its varying tales of the odd and vaguely supernatural, a story called The Ventriloquist Dummy, a genuinely disturbing foray into multiple personalities with no less than Sir Michael Redgrave as the increasingly mad and obsessed puppeteer. It's by far the best story in the film. In 1954, another much more tawdry and nasty ventriloquist story came out of the UK. Devil Doll gets down to the gutter in this surprisingly gritty little exercise. So what's the appeal? Is it the absolute irony of innocent children's toys turning against us and getting violent that makes us embrace them so when they grow fangs and a hunger for our flesh and blood? One of my favorite killer dolls is featured in a segment of Dan Curtis's television horror anthology movie, Trilogy of Terror, scripted by Richard Matheson. A tribal doll with really sharp teeth is re-energized with a spiritually inhabited bracelet by Karen Black, and it attacks her with its sharp spear and razor-sharp teeth. But everyone's favorite malevolent toy has to be the good guy doll himself, Chucky. Taking on the spirit of an executed serial killer, Chucky is a little doll who could, over and over and over. Sort of a Mattel version of Freddy Krueger. Chucky's combination of bloodbaths and witty humor have made for an increasingly imaginative series of adventures that seem to go more and more off the wall and deliriously delightful with each new chapter. We'll talk to Chucky's creator, Don Mancini, about Chucky's past, present, and future right after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally. To the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. When did it start for you, Don? What was, when did you first realize that you were drawn to darker entertainment? Dark shadows. Yeah? Yeah. I, um, in fact, I learned the word shadow. I remember. It's one of my earliest memories. I used to watch it with my mom. And it really? came on at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, as I recall, right after Let's Make a Deal. Ah, okay. Three, that was on at 3.30. Dark Shadows was at 4. And I remember asking my mother, what is a shadow? Nice. So I must have been three, 
three wow. or four, something like that. Um, and I remember my mother explaining to me, you, you know, both the literal and metaphoric explanations of what shadow was. She said, well, this thing that's cast on the wall there, but she said, it's also refers to your dark side. And I'm like, three wow. years old. That's like, pretty take, sophisticated. Taking this in and, and like, oh, I'm fascinated by all of this. Yeah, and I, I loved it. I, I loved that show. And of course, being that age, I would did not perceive the unintended camp of it uh, right. or the low production values. I took it very much at face value and was enthralled, particularly by the character Angelique. Really? Yeah. What was it that drew you to her? I think it it's the archetype of the femme fatale. I think when you're really young, you it's on it's particularly unsettling because I think you respond to it as like a monstrous version of mommy, mm-hmm. you know, because she's like this. The, just the notion of a beautiful woman who is the opposite of nurturing and you know that she's she's horrible and wants to kill you <laughs> there's something <laughs> yes. really terrifying about that to a child i think to that's my theory anyway because yeah. i remember shortly after that saying I'm, I'm like as i'm telling the story thinking my mother was very permissive because i remember like watching the old um noir movie uh, with gene tierney leave her to heaven oh yeah yeah. And that made a huge impression on me. Again, the femme fatale archetype, just really? the, the beautiful woman who, you know, throws her down herself down a flight of stairs in order to abort her unborn. Bi- you know, it's yeah. just yeah. really unsettling. So I, th- I anyway, I think that f- femme fatale archetype really got me. But then, you know, in, in Dark Shadows, it was the whole soap opera mm-hmm. saga of this family and they're all f- – just their their family problems made metaphorical through being vampires and werewolves right, and witches. Yes. There's, there's something still potent about that. Well, what was your childhood like? Were you uh, did you have siblings? Um, uh, was it a close knit family? Where did you feel like an outsider? Or um, I had it was a big family. I had four sisters. I was the oh, only wow. boy. Um, in what was, order were you? A, I was right in the middle. Two uh, older sisters, two younger, Italian American, and I, you know, and gay. So yeah. I think so. Yeah, I felt like an outsider, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> and I'm sure that that contributed um, perhaps to my, you know eventual attraction to the horror genre. It wasn't even eventual. It, it's, it's yeah, happened well, very, very quickly. Yeah. Very, very quickly. That is maybe the <laughs> earliest conversion I've ever heard of. Um, right out of the womb. Where's the where's the makeup? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. But for as far as the attraction to the genre, do you still find it to be the favorite? Uh, you know, if you're looking for entertainment, do you go looking for a horror movie? First? Not necessarily, no. I mean, I've, I, you know, I... I very quickly became interested in all kinds of genres and mm-hmm. all kinds of different movies, but in, in, I assume that maybe you had a, a similar experience in Hollywood that you know, like actors, you can get typed. Yes, and you know, and I horror jail, <laughs> horror jail, the horror ghetto. 
Um, but for me, it, it's so super specific. I mean, I will get, you know, like people will like, are you interested in doing a leprechaun movie <laughs> or another gremlins? Something you know, little. So, yeah. yeah, like little puppety things, <laughs> you know. It's like, but, but you know, the upside of that is like, okay, I have a niche. Yeah. You know, and it's um, allowed me to work for yeah. you know 30 some years and counting hopefully we, and I feel really grateful for that. Yeah, I feel the same way. I love the genre. I I truly do. It's not something that I want to do just because I think this is the way to be successful. And uh, that's something that is often the case, but you know, and I've made my little creature movie too as well with yep. critters too, but but it can be a jail, but it can also be an opportunity. Absolutely. With what you did with Chucky, for example, once it became a franchise, it kind of was – was it the case that it seems like anything you wanted to do within the Chucky world, you could kind of create and go there the way you like? Well, you know, within reason. I mean obviously yeah. it didn't have utter carte blanche or anything, but – um, again, but it changed its personality oh, once you took yeah. over the reins. Yes, it did. I mean, I and and back again. I think because like we turned it into a comedy for a couple of movies, and then with Curse of Chucky, our intention was to bring it back to its more gothic roots. Um, but I, I think I, I'm I've been very fortunate to have had an association with our mutual friend David Kirshner. Yes, wonderful producer. Great guy, wonderful producer and a and a very loyal friend as well yes. because he, you know, he has had an unusual for a producer an unusual amount of control over the franchise. Um, for reasons I don't necessarily have to get into unless you want to. I don't know how interesting <laughs> it is. <laughs> the, it's all the, interesting the, here. The uh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, anyway. But David, you know, has kept me around. Yeah. You know, and he – and not have, not all producers would have done that, particularly after Seed of Chucky, which by the way is a movie that I am proud of and I like. <laughs> um, but it didn't – you know, it didn't do well at the box office and there were, you know, plenty of producers who would have – shown me the door right at the, at and change ships yeah. absolutely yeah. and david did not and so i i i it's really been the two of us you know together kind of steering the ship and over the years and we and our more grandiose moments like to think of ourselves as the broccolis of the horror genre you know? <laughs> and, and, then, and we're not talking about the vegetable we're talking the, about the, cubby broccoli who produced all the he, James although Bond that's movies. how he built his fortune though suppose like like his family the the like the broccoli f- italian family origins was in broccoli <laughs> in italy well, i guess when you're born with that name, there's an obvious direction to but go. yeah but they you know so they have that family has has had control over the bond yeah. franchise for 50 years and also they have steered the steered that franchise through different tones completely and not that i was consciously trying to emulate <laughs> the bond franchise in that way yeah. but i think it's you know it's something I, I like I never want to make the same movie twice. And you know, you were talking in a slightly different context a moment ago about how um horror jail can be an opportunity as well as a trap. And the opportunity for me was because these movies 
you know people wanted to keep making these movies mm-hmm. um and 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 david fortunately was my protector and allowed me to stay around i i took it as an opportunity to like make different kind of movies and let's right. see how versatile this character is and see what different subgenres we can plug him into and we found in fact that he's a very elastic character right and um i've Because uh, getting back to another of your questions a moment ago about what other kinds of genres I like, I love comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And it – with Bride of Chucky, it was catnip to me to be able to finally really embrace – fully embrace the absurdity that was inherent in the concept and turn it to an advantage rather than a liability. And I I actually think that that helped – solidify his the character's stature in the zeitgeist i think because people have really come to love him in a way and i think because with bride of chucky we we find out more about chucky's psyche Mm -hmm. you know chucky's been through a lot in 30 years and seven films right you know he's we've you know he's had a wife and a kid and you know the kid well the whole choice (laughs) the whole choice of bringing in the jennifer tilly character was a complete refresh yeah. uh, and reboot of what Chucky was all about. Absolutely. And it was hilarious yeah. and sexy. And it does have a lot in common with the Freddy Krueger progression too. I mean it, that character was at the center of something that was much bigger than that. Right. And this universe kind of grew and became more and more imaginative and wild and and kind of – Freewheeling, yeah. it seems, and it seems that that was the case with Chucky as well. Absolutely, and I was very influenced by A Nightmare on Elm Street and uh-huh. Freddy Krueger. I, I loved the first movie when it showed up. I loved its creativity and imagination, and just how the concept allowed for Wes Craven to get into aspects of surrealism that I th- I thought were were so fascinating, and obviously. The child's play movies are, you know, a very different concept. Oh, yeah. We don't deal with different aspects of reality and get into dreams in the way that the nightmare movies do. But the character of Chucky, like Freddy, I, I think I was obviously influenced mm-hmm. by him in that he's has a dark sense of humor and he he's quite chatty. <laughs> and in that sense, those characters are different from yeah. Uh, Jason and Michael Myers and Leatherface. The mute killers. Very chatty, very amusing, and really freaking dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to talk more about Chucky, but I'd love to just get back into the roots. How... How it began? When did you start writing? Did you do it in school? Did you... uh, Was it something that... um, you you knew wanted to be your job in the future or? i did i knew i knew from about the age of 8 that that's mm. what i wanted to do but interestingly i hope <laughs> we'll see <laughs> you tell me if this is interesting it re- the the movie that made me realize i wanted to be a filmmaker was not a horror movie it was mm-hmm. the poseidon adventure really yeah really? i was cuz at that age you know i gr- i grew up in the 70s and the the disaster genre made a huge impression on me mm-hmm. and in a way there is some overlap with the horror genre because sure. they that genre also deals with depictions of horrible death on right. screen life and death yeah but i think also importantly because those mo- movies like poseidon adventure and towering inferno 
were so special effects heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, I immediately became intrigued with uh, the illusion. You know how mm. how are these illusions accomplished? And I think I, I became aware of a, a storytelling presence behind the camera through my interest in those movies. So. Uh, it's also a big external canvas that you're painting stories on yes. and not just writing words. Right, right, exactly. And I was still very interested in horror movies. I love, uh, you know, having been brought up in an, an Italian-American family, we were Catholic. So The Omen made a huge impression love on that me. Movie. That, that was the first R-rated movie I ever saw. Ah. And and being a kid and being Catholic at that time, I just <laughs> yeah. like it. I took it very seriously. Um, Did your sisters uh, share – any of your sisters share this affinity for – Not really. Yeah. Only to the extent that when I started making my own home movies, they would star in them ah, because they were okay. available and I would have them kill each other. <laughs> so it was screen. horror movies from the beginning. Exactly. Even then. Um I was also really into those movies by Brian De Palma oh, in the wow. 70s, uh, Carrie and The Fury. And I think that what they had in common with The Omen and The Exorcist, it was all about children getting supernatural revenge on their right. enemies. And I think... I imagine that probably appealed to me. As, yes, I can as imagine. A kid. Well, what a perfect decade to be a kid because yeah. that was a golden decade for the It genre. sure was. Yeah. yeah. And there were also so many advances made and um what's the term? Uh Advances in gore effects, yes, but also yeah. there were also restrictions became more lenient <laughs> about yes. that. So we just suddenly started seeing this in movies. The Savini stuff and, uh, and the yeah. Cronenberg stuff. And, and, and yeah. Jaws also. Yeah, yeah. I mean just in mainstream PG-13 movies for a while, you'd see like incredible bloodshed on screen. And you know, as a child, you go, huh. So you saw them in the movie theaters? <laughs> oh, yeah. or were you a child of home video? No, I saw those movies yeah. in the theater. Yeah. And so you did it on your own. Was your your permissive mother someone who actually would take you to the movies so you could get And my into dad. Our I mean, they were yeah. definitely yeah. big, you know, film goers. Uh-huh. I mean, I remember even them once as a child uh taking us to go see Gone with the Wind, mm. which initially I was like resistant. I was thinking yeah. Oh, this is going to be like homework or something, you know. And then, yeah. you know, I'm watching it. A broccoli and, like movie. enthralled by Vivian Lee and Scarlett <laughs> O'Hara. It's like, what is she going to do? And then, like, then there's the the intermission when she says, I'll, I'll never starve again. And yeah. the lights go down. And I'm like saying to my parents, What? It's That's over? it? And they go, No, no, it's coming back. Thank God. What's going to happen to her? You were only so, halfway. Yeah, yeah. So, my, yeah, my parents were big film goers and they passed that on to me. And then I went, uh, you know, and I, ma- I made my own films in high school. And then when I went to college, I did my first two years at Columbia University in New York as an English major. They, uh-huh. have a great, they have a great film department there, but one's access to it was limited as an undergrad. You couldn't major in film. So I was an English major. Uh, but th- I, got, I got antsy relatively quickly because I really mm. knew what I, I, I wanted to do. So I Did you get a degree? 
Well, first I left Columbia and I took a year off from school and I like I, I did the like I hitchhiked across the country wow. and, you know, did that, you know, wanderlust thing and got that out of my system. <laughs> and, and then I worked on a soap opera for a year. How did that come about and which one was it? The soap opera was Search for Tomorrow oh, in man. New York, which at the time was the longest running soap. Well, it ran forever. It yeah. did. And um, how did it come about? I just – my dad had worked in marketing and advertising. Right. Was he an ad copywriter? No, no. He didn't He didn't write copy. But he, he actually – I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. He worked for a pharmaceutical company. But he was – he acted as the company's liaison to ad agencies in New York. So I would often – go to New York with him uh-huh. on business trips. And so that was a world I was really uh, uh, exposed to. And it actually, this has um, pertinence to how Child's Play came to be, which we can talk about in a second. But um, so, so it was through, through the, those, my dad's connections in New York that I was able to get this job on this TV show. And I was, I, I literally was like the lowest guy on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, I don't... I was like Stephen Weber is here now. I, I bet he may have he may have some um, uh, probably has tons of knowledge about this. But for me, it was just like really eye opening the idea of of when you're shooting a soap opera, you know, on video, and you've got three cameras, and so like every day, it's like the three cameras are going from set to set to set to right. set all around the studio, and it was my job to keep the cables from getting all entwined. Right. And I mean, it sounds banal and I guess, no, it but it's kinda, a cable but, wrangler, but, but, but it's, but it's really important it. to yeah. this day. I'm awesome with the garden hose <laughs> and like, I can, I can like, you know, do that. And I'm good with the, you know, ropes and stuff. Um, and it was a thrill. It was totally thrilling. Cause like I worked on the show for a year and amazing actors came through that show on the one year I worked on it. And they're doing this was still when they were doing them live? No, although they we did doing, do one live show okay. as as a as a publicity stunt. And they you're what, about do, twenty years old? Exactly. Yeah. I was twenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nineteen and twenty. But while I was on that show, Olympia Dukakis, John Glover, Cheryl Lee Ralph, while wow. she was on Broadway in Dreamgirls, and I'm like this young gay guy, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> Michelle Phillips, just Jesus. amazing, amazing people uh, came through that show. And I, one of the things that it left me with was, was a huge respect for the actors who work on, on soap operas right. because – they have it, the workload is so phenomenal it's so huge just the amount of material that that they have to memorize but i also just came away with a with a huge respect for how like those actors they became so adept at at, at business and and dealing with props i mean stuff like you don't really perceive until you like take acting classes mm-hmm. yourself or become a director how like sometimes very good actors you know, might not be so good with props. In my experience, I've found like actors who have training in soaps and television shows, they just, they they just are are so, have such a facility with stuff 
that right. as a director, you go like, oh, God, I'm so glad you're here, you know. Um, well, it had to be an incredible education for somebody who wanted to be screenwriting and wanted to be making films. It was. It, it was a huge education. Even though it's a very different process doing a soap opera from doing a movie. Yes, but in a, in a way, in retrospect, I look back on it and think, you know, with the Chucky franchise over over the course of 30 years and seven films and now going into a TV series – I you know I I certainly have a lot of experience now with keeping a story going and right, having an right. ongoing saga with with continuity and stuff mm-hmm. like that and and sometimes I wonder if having worked on Search for Tomorrow <laughs> Search might for have given tomorrow. me a, a, you know an appreciation for that. Yeah. Well, were you writing spec scripts at the time when you were going to Columbia and when you were working on Search for Tomorrow? Uh, no, not quite yet. Then uh, I, I tr- from there, after that year I worked on the show, I transferred to UCLA hmm. um, as an undergraduate. So you moved to the West Coast so that you could get into films and television. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And at UCLA, did you study film there? I did, yeah. I was a film major then and that's when I started writing scripts. And, and Child's Play was actually my second feature-length script. I had written one before – and I got an A, and so I thought. <laughs> so I like thought, like, oh, I can do this, as if like I'm like you, you know naively emboldened by that, and think, oh, this well, is going to be my path. Nothing naive and wrong. Well, about well, that. but yeah. I, I, the thing is, I got incredibly lucky. I yeah. really did. And so I wrote, I wrote the first Child's Play, and I thought, like, my biggest ambition for it was that I would get an agent. You know, because right. that's like when you're a you know, writer starting out, that's the first plateau that you need to reach. Well, the A was the first plateau. <laughs> Getting the A, an yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then an agent after that. Yeah. Um, but now, I what did, was before Child's Play? What was that script? Did it ever get sold? Did it? It ever, never got sold. No? It's really bad. Um, it's, it got an A. How bad could it be? It yeah. was called Split Screen, and it was very influenced by my being a De Palma fanatic. Ah. It was. You know, it was very meta. Right. The dress to kill. Well, well, in this case, it was like it was about a it was kind of like De Palma meets something wicked this way comes. It was like a a film company comes to a small town to make a movie Mm -hmm. and the people in the town realize that they're just like living out a script. It's just terror. It's the sort of thing you write, you know, when you're 20 years old. (laughs) Right. You know, you just think it's really cool. And I, you know. So the second time out is Child's Play, yeah. which becomes how, how did what was the process? Did that get you an agent? Did that? Uh, it did. I mean, so I had because of my exposure to the world of advertising and marketing through my dad. I I was very aware from an early age of of the cynicism inherent in in that world, particularly selling products to children. Mm-hmm. The Madison Avenue refers to children as consumer trainees. And, oh, and, and I discovered that as a child and I wow. thought that's awful. <laughs> so I I was originally interested. My first impetus was I wanted to write a dark satire about how advertising affects children. Hmm. And this – because this was in the 80s, the Cabbage Patch doll craze was in full swing and and having been a lifelong horror fan and a fan of many of those 
killer doll uh, films and TV shows that you mentioned, particularly Trilogy of Terror. Oh, yeah. You know, I saw as a kid, made a huge impression on me, and the movie Magic. Oh, the, yeah. The no- and the Hopkins. novel and yeah. the movie Magic made a huge impression on me. That was me. Ira Levin, right? No, who wrote the novel? William Goldman. William Goldman, who just of passed yeah, away yeah. like a week right. ago. One, yeah. Maybe our greatest ever screenwriter yeah. and novelist. Yeah. Have you ever read the novel Magic? I have. It's I have. so it's so great yeah. and, and crucially different from the movie because you, you the novel, the first hundred pages, it's an epistolary novel and it's the journal of this character named Fats. And he's like the good friend of ventriloquist Corky and he's talking about how he's worried that his friend Corky is losing his mind. And then you get to page 100 and you realize he's the dummy. And you go, <laughs> holy shit. And of course there was no way the movie could accommodate right. that twist. Right. But still, I, I, I loved the movie and Anthony Hopkins was great anyway so cabbage patch dolls were really popular in the 80s i wanted to write a a satire about the dark side of merchandising i was a fan of killer doll movies (laughs) this was also post gremlins and so i was i was very aware that animatronic effects had advanced to the point that they were so sophisticated that the doll could emote you know right. that he and enunciate could say mm-hmm. rather th- unlike a lot of those dolls from earlier movies where their mouths were just kind of flappy you know like right. muppets um now they could actually articulate so i was very aware that there was nothing i could write that the puppeteers couldn't execute so right. it was just like very emboldened if they could do by all of they this. could do that. exactly Any. and i was also very aware that like um at this point that I'm thinking there are probably 50 other people who are writing something very similar right now. Right. So I should write this really quickly. So I, but I did get an agent with that script, but then our mutual friend, David Kirshner ended up optioning it and he set it up at MGM, you know, so that all of these were other plateaus that like I actually, so I sold the script and I got into the writer's guild and then the movie actually got made. But wait, there was a movie before that. Right? Didn't cellar dweller, cellar dweller? Oh, made fuck you! Before? Yes, oh. yes, yes. Oh. No, I'm kidding. I'm happy. I'll, yes, I. I, have, I don't want to skip something that is your first screenwriting credit. You know, um, cellar dweller. Yes, that's a, a Charles Band movie I yes. wrote. And Speaking of killer doll movies, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> All the puppet, uh, which some of them are, some of them are good. Doll, dolls, one. dolls yeah. is good. Yeah, dolls. Stuart Gordon. Yeah, dolls. it's really good. Yeah. So I, I had written Child's Play, and David had optioned it. But in the couple of years before it was made, then I, you know, was a jobbing screenwriter looking for work, and Charles Band had read the script and liked it, and like most people who had experiences at Empire Pictures in the 80s, you know, I go in, they bring out the poster, you know, we want to make a movie. It's going to be called Cellar Dweller. It has to have this monster and it all has to take place in one set. Go. Yes. And I'm like, okay, go. So I, I, what I, I wrote something that was a little probably a little too expensive mm-hmm. than that they could have afforded. So oh, you mean was, there was more than one room? <laughs> yeah, it was more than one. But I, you know, my, but my idea was because that took place in an artist colony and the main character was a car, a cartoonist. I did this whole thing where there was the, in the third act, they go into the comic book 
and it's a cartoonized version of of the house so that it's like then you would repaint the same set ah. with the bold primary colors right. of comic books. I thought all of this was really brilliant and they were like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. And they didn't use any of that. <laughs> it um, probably was really brilliant. <laughs> Had they done it, it would have been a bigger success. But um, that, that movie was directed by maybe someone you know, John Beekler. Uh, yeah, yep. a makeup effects a, guy. A very, very talented makeup effects guy. Very nice man too, yeah. at least. I mean, I yeah. don't really know him, but he was very nice to me and I think he did a good job in the, you know, probably eight or nine days that he had to make that movie <laughs> in the, within the parameters offered him yes. right um but i i i was advised and agreed that it was probably unprudent for me to use a pseudonym on that movie but the thing is now you know 30 years later i sometimes will meet fans who, who will like ask me to sign seller dwellers yeah, so, so it's like you know you can write anything and you think like oh my god i'm so embarrassed but it like some people are gonna like it absolutely it's kind of cool especially within this genre where the fans like to own it yeah they like to possess it they buy the physical media they feel like it's their movie yeah and that's a wonderful thing that it doesn't is. happen in yeah. other genre okay so seller dweller is behind you now and uh, child's play is in front of you. Yeah. So the process uh, moves forward. It's set up at a studio at MGM. And what's the next step? Were you involved with the rewrites? What was uh, Tom Holland came on board? I was not. I was not involved with the rewrites. They signed sidelined me immediately, which you know I I expected. I mean, I think they just looked it's at me as this unusual. kid. You know, this yeah. kid because yeah. I was in in college. But I was very excited about Tom Holland because I was a fan of his work. I was a fan of Psycho 2. Psycho 2 was a great script. Psycho 2 yeah. was great. Cloak and Dagger right. I really liked a lot. Henry Fright Thomas. Night yeah. I loved. So I, I was super excited and um, they had a, a kind of courtesy meeting with me. So I, was, I got to meet Tom. It was, you know, it was pretty brilliant. Pretty brief, but right. it was you know understood that he was going to go off and, and rewrite it, and that's like I was okay with that. Yeah, he's an established, successful writer. Right, and he's going to direct it. It's going to be right. Yeah. But what a lot of people don't know is that the road to filming that movie actually was much more complicated than that because he he left the project. Oh, I didn't know that. I know you didn't, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you. It's like it had two years more. Then, so then David brought in another writer, John Lafia, right, to to do a draft of the script. And I guess based on that draft, for a while Joseph Rubin was oh, attached the stepfather, to it. Father, yeah, yep. Yeah. And then at one point. Do you remember Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel? Yes, they did the um, Max, the, Headroom. Max Headroom with, yeah. with Matt Frewer. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were attached to it for a while as well. So there was like two years where I think you know, they did Mario did, Brothers too. If I'm did not they? Mistaken. Yeah, One I, of those I never gamer, met. I never movies. met them. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so you know, it, it went through a process without Tom for a while, and then somehow came back to him, mm-hmm. and then he ended up. You know, making the movie. It was shot during the Writers Guild strike of 1988. So I couldn't be there. Not that Tom would have wanted me around anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think. But um, I, I, I wasn't around for the filming of the movie. But once it got into post, David very graciously invited me back into the process. Ah. You know, he showed me 
Tom's cut and asked me my opinions for what it was worth, you know, right. and, and that, right. and as you know, when you're a young writer, that's a big deal. Yeah, that, that rarely, that happens. is very, very rare. And, and David <clears throat> was, was very gracious and inclusive with me. And I think it was really in that part of the process that he and I started to bond more yeah. than even when he had first, you know, read my script right. as a film student and optioned it. I think he maybe saw that like I had something to contribute. So, you know, so the mo- the movie was was edited and it came out and and it was a success and I I was thrilled. I mean, obviously yeah. because it was rewritten and there are elements of of the mythology in in the movie that were different from what I had written. So naturally, I had a certain ambivalence about it right. and I couldn't be objective. I was still very excited and and thrilled that it was a hit. And then they wanted to develop the sequel immediately. So David asked me back. And One of the things that people don't understand about the job of the screenwriter is the heartbreaking part. Yeah. And it, it is not just not uncommon, but common and maybe even usual that other writers are brought on after you. You are left aside. They develop it. A director will come in and bring in a writer or rewrite himself, things like that. There, There is that heartbreaking part. But, you know, on Hocus Pocus, for example, which I did with David, right. there were 11 writers on it after me. Really? 11 writers. Wow. And it, it, I wrote the my drafts eight years before the movie was made. Wow. So it took eight years for that to get made. And and you kind of remove yourself from the process. You kind of ha- like you were talking about when they went away and made the movie. And I was doing cellar door. <laughs> yeah, you were doing something else. <clears throat> but and, and so it can be heartbreaking. But you have to just let it go. And then, you know, like in the case of of Child's Play, it came back, and and there were all these versions. But so much of it was yours that you get the credit. You are able to continue the saga with number two. But uh, like in the case of Hocus Pocus, you know, it's it's a circular thing. And when something gets finally made, especially if you're brand new in the in the in the business and it's an opportunity, you start to appreciate that they used anything of yours at all. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is such a gift to be able to have something that connects like Child's Play has connected with an audience. So tell me about the process of going to Child's Play 2 and how it came back in your hands. Well, as I said, I was, you know, very involved in the post-production process. I mean, that sounds too grandiose. I, again, he David asked me my opinion on cuts and he would, you know, he he would show me different one sheets. What do you think of this? He just, he asked my opinion mm-hmm. and which is a writer as, you know, as we said, it's so rare, but, and so appreciated when it happens. So we, we bonded through that and we went to a series of test screenings for child's play one. And we were in the habit of, you know, David and Liz and I would, Liz is David's wife. Yeah. Liz Kirshner. Yeah. We would, um, plant ourselves in the lines and we would say like, I hear this movie's really good. <laughs> so I say like that. And then we'd get into the, um, in the audience would plan ourselves there and we would, you know, scream at, at the appropriate junctures, um, <laughs> guiding um, the reaction. And it worked yeah. and it worked. So anyway, so the movie was a hit. And so David asked me to, 
to do the sequel and and he asked John Lafia, who had done one of the drafts of the first movie and and who with whom Tom and Tom Holland and I share screenplay credit on the first movie, he asked John to direct Child's Play 2. So building that movie, it was really the uh, the a process that David and John and I sort of built from the ground up. But for me, it was an opportunity to bring back some of the stuff that so, some of the scenes and elements and details of my original script that had fallen by the wayside mm. that I was able to bring back. And stuff it, it's you like, were sorry to miss. Right. Yeah. It's that one of the nice things about having a franchise is that any, you know, any, you have a scene, a set piece, a character, a concept, whatever. You put it in a drawer and then 10 years later, oh, maybe it's time yeah. to, to pull this out. So like the factory sequence in Child's Play 2, that was in my script for Child's Play 1, but it didn't make it into the movie. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do that. Um, it And that movie I was much more involved in. I was – David and John Lafia again were really gracious uh, to me and allowed me to participate in everything. I got I I sat in on casting sessions and and met with designers again just and as a as a way of allowing me to learn really right, and it was right. wonderful. You're still in your twenties here. Yes, yeah. early twenties in yes. fact. Yeah, it's, and so I I was learning a lot. It was really like going to film school, and I was on the set of. From Child's Play 2 on, all of the movies, I was involved in everything. And and then, you know, finally they, you know, had to give me the the keys to directing it because yeah. I just wouldn't go away. Um, but Child's Play 2 came out and it was a hit. And like Child's Play 1, it w- it won the weekend. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so let's do Child's Play 3. It's an amazing so, feeling though, isn't it, to have your movie come out and be the number it's one in, movie? Well, it, it's – crazy but it also because it happened to me right out of the gate twice yeah. in a row it you got gave spoiled me, <laughs> i got very spoiled and i was it gave me a kind of distorted impression of what a career was like yeah it's not always like uh, that yeah I'm like, I'm like this isn't hard you know and then child's play three came out and it bombed and so i came down to earth and so uh, i realized you know that career's you know, or like roller coaster rides. You go yeah. up, you go down, and you know, hopefully, you have the endurance to um, to persevere. Yeah, which you have, but it, incredibly, so much of your feature career is Chucky. Yes, I mean the preponderance of that. But tell me about the process when you became a director, and uh, that the reins were in your hands, and how that felt, and and how you prepared for it. Was on Bride of Chucky. I directed. I was a producer on that movie as well for the first time, and um, I was a second unit director mm-hmm. on Bride. So that's a great way to ease into it. It was. Yeah. It was great. And, and but and, you know, I directed a lot, not a lot, but some puppet stuff. Right. You so know. for people who don't know what second unit directors do, why don't you fill in what your job was? Um. You know for. Second, second unit, it's like where, where there are shots that don't often or usually don't involve primary cast. 
um, in, in a lot of action movies, like we were talking about the Bond movies earlier, there's a whole, you know, the second unit is like a whole other, you know, major thing on those movies. It's just that, you know, the, the, the interstitial stuff, I guess, right. is that the simplest way to put it? The complicated mechanical stuff that uh, would slow the first unit down right. too much to incorporate into the shoot. In the case of Chucky movies, it, 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 eventually just involves a lot of puppet stuff you know it's like we don't have time to finish this shot now let's give it to the second unit right so i did a lot of that stuff on bride of chucky including the very end of the movie which was the in the cemetery the birth of the baby that would become the seat of chucky i directed that and a few other things and because that movie was successful they finally said okay we can't say no to him yes, anymore and i'm like yeah. please may i so so see so then i wrote seed of chucky you know with bride we had turned it into a comedy right. deliberately because we you know we didn't want to keep making the same movie and over over and over again so we we switched it up and it was successful and then with seed i wanted to do the same thing i didn't want to make the same movie as bride and we mm-hmm. could have it it still could have been focused on these dolls but in in bride you had the characters played by Catherine heigl and nick stabile and they were and and they were very naturalistic characters that kind of grounded everything Mm -hmm. and maybe naively in retrospect i just thought like oh i don't want to do that again i just like (laughs) want to make it even crazier so i you know went all meta and 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 I wanted to bring Jennifer Tilly back, yeah, because yeah. I I loved working with her so much, and she's so funny, and she's so such a unique actress. She brings Absolutely. something very special to what she does. And and in Bride of Chucky, she was in the movie physically for the first half hour, and then her character Chucky kills her character and transforms her into a doll, and then. The rest of the movie, it's a vocal performance. I wanted to have both. I wanted to have her physically in the movie. So I said, like, you'll play yourself and it'll take place in Hollywood and you're making a Chucky movie. And, you know, it's just like one of those things that it seemed like such a good idea at the time. But I still maintain – I'm still proud of this movie. I still think it's a good idea. Well, I get – you know, I I almost daily get – you know, trolls on Twitter tweeting me about what an asshole I was to make that movie and how I ruined my own franchise and stuff. But They're I fools. Well, I they get, have nothing I very, better to do. I, well, I very defensively point out to them that that Pulitzer Prize-winning film critic Wesley Morris loved Seed of Chucky. So some very smart people like that film. Enough said. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, the movie. It's it's funny because that movie didn't do well upon release but of all of the all of them it's the one that has had the longest cult longevity interesting i think it it, because it's dealing with a lot of lgbt issues and the character of glenn glenda is transgender Mm -hmm. it it just was maybe a little bit ahead of the curve like in a way that if it came out now maybe people would be more more embracing yeah, yeah who knows but how great to be ahead of its time rather than behind well, its time. Well, it was time. like you with yeah. Hocus Pocus. I think Hocus Pocus was similar that like when it came out – I don't. I know that movie wasn't a flop, but it wasn't like No, it was a not a big success, success. Not at all. But it has had this looming, growing life in the zeitgeist it's in kind 20 of years. Yeah, it's, it's really nice yeah. that that happens. To yeah. have something – you know, and a lot of the things that were – my least successful critters too was a total flop now it's revived constantly at festivals and every easter it's in theaters and 
And, you know, when I went to see it opening night, there were two people in my neighborhood. <laughs> so <clears throat> I, I have had that too. But it's had its 30th anniversary as well as Child's Play did this year. So, yes. Uh, 88 was a good year. <laughs> it was a good year. <laughs> it was good. So let's talk a little bit outside of the Chucky realm. People don't know you as well as one of the writers of Hannibal, which I think is maybe the greatest broadcast network series ever on television. How did you get involved in that? Um, I was a fan. Uh, I was a fan of the show. I was actually a fan of that whole franchise for a long time. The the novels as well the as Thomas the, Harris books. The yeah. Thomas Harris books, and I've also um, been friends and worked with the De Laurentiis a lot uh, over thirty years. And you know things that didn't get produced mostly. Correct. Mm. Yes. Anything I, notable you want to mention that, that <laughs> things that you wished had been made that the you were first really proud the of? first script I so I sold to Dino was a script called The Dog Who Cried Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> Good title. This, uh, it was the eighties. <laughs> it was the eighties, and talking dogs were very popular. Um, it's kind of a cute idea. It's kind of a Disney meets Hitchcock idea about a there's a, a combo a police dog who flunks out of the core, and he ends up being um, a, just the pet of a speech therapist who is developing a a device which allows people who have had vocal cord uh, problems to speak, and it, the prototype gets switched with a dog collar. <laughs> <laughs> the dog ends up on the dog's throat. The dog can talk. Turns out dogs don't talk not because they're stupid. They just lack the proper vocal range. Uh-huh. And he witnesses a murder that his owner is framed for and hijinks ensue. <laughs> it sounds kind of outrageous. It was pretty outrageous. Yeah. But I remember – so like Dino bought that script. I'd, I'd first met Raffaella because she was yeah. on the Universal lot and I became friendly with her. So like she was going to produce Dog Who Cry Wolf. We set it up with Dino and the very first time I met him, I go into his office. I'm very intimidated, excited, intimidated because he's this legendary figure, you know, and I walk into his office and the very first thing he said to me was, Mancini, I hate your script. Nice. <laughs> Welcome to my company. <laughs> and I'm thinking that would explain so much. Like Orca the killer whale. Is that what happened? Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're, they're the loveliest people. Yeah. You know, Dino and Martha and Raphael and I've known them all for 30 years and been friends and worked with them anyway. Um, so I was, a f- I, was, I was such a fan of the Hannibal franchise, which the De Laurentiis is controlled, that Martha even when – when Thomas Harris was prevailed upon by Dino to write that novel, she, she gave it to me in galleys because she knew I couldn't wait. Actually, yeah. it was just, he wrote yeah. the script first before really? the novel. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I was a huge fan of that franchise I re- and I really think Thomas Harris is a brilliant writer. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think Hannibal Lecter is a fascinating character. So when I, I heard that they were doing as a, as a TV series, I was initially skeptical, like Mm -hmm. a lot of people. I didn't know Brian Fuller at this point. 
Um, I, I knew his work, and we were when we would sometimes tweet at each other, but I had mm-hmm. never met him. And no one would have expected a broadcast network like NBC to embrace something right. and give it the respect that it deserved. Absolutely. Well, he certainly earned that with the work because it was brilliant, you know. And I just when that, so that movie that show started airing, and I just was riveted by it right Me out too. of the gate. Yeah. And I I happen to know someone who worked on the show in Toronto where it was shot. And so I was in the habit of talking to him on a weekly basis about I would say like, this is what I thought of this episode. And I would go, are you guys going to use Mason Verger? Is this going to happen? Finally, Mm. he said, Don, you should be working on this show. Yes. And I said, how could that ever happen? He goes, well, you should just call Brian. That that would be too pushy. And he goes, No, you really should. So I basically wrote Brian a fan letter. And I, you know, I said, look, I am a Hannibal Lecter Uber geek, which <laughs> in most aspects of my life can be quite embarrassing, but it could be of use to you. <laughs> and he, you know, and he answered and he said, Oh, I love Chucky. I'm a fan of your work too. And he said, well, we'll, you know, we'll get together and talk about it. And then I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks. And I, and I just thought it was like one of those things that would never happen. And then, and then I ran into him and Martha De Laurentiis at the Saturn Awards. And I was uh-huh. nominated for a Saturn Award as, as they were too. And I'm like thinking, please let me win. Please let me win. Because I figured if I won and I could actually get up in front of them on a stage with a trophy, <laughs> that I would have a better chance of getting that job. What an and, ulterior and I motive. I did win. Yay! And I did win. And then Brian and Martha said, oh, well, aren't we going to talk? And I went, yeah, I've been oh. waiting. So um, that's how I, I ended up working on the show. And it was totally thrilling because it, yeah. it was such a great show. And I honestly think one, one of the interesting innovations of that show was that it was so gay. It yeah. was, you know, that, and that yeah. was a very new thing that Brian brought to it. And I thought that that was really fascinating. I mean, people talked a lot about how that show, you know, the violence and just the sheer perversity of that show. The operatic perversity. The yes. operatic perversity on a network. It was just yeah. really surprising. But it was also for, you know, gay viewers. It's very, you know, there's so much going on between Hannibal and Will. Right. And you're thinking – Wait a minute. The, this connection between these guys, there's something romantic kind of happening yeah, on, in the subtext. Yeah. I loved that aspect of the show and um, talked a lot about that with Brian. And and so I was so – I felt so so thrilled and honored to be a part of season three where a lot of that was really kind of brought out Blooming, even yes. more. Yeah. Um, it 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 was it was thrilling to work on that show. Is it important to you to inject politics or social uh, uh, activism into your work? Yes, yeah, because I think why not? You know, why, you know, it's gonna. It just seems like an opportunity. Yeah. You're not I, preaching. You're not get, feeding them broccoli. But you, yeah, it's you, not. Yeah. I mean, it's not. But it's it's an opportunity. You've got to make movies about something, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I felt like when I started I, injecting a queer identity into the Chucky franchise. And in my view, that's when it started getting interesting. I mean, I know Tom Holland might disagree, (laughs) but um, many people might disagree. But uh, for me, I think that it, it, it gave, it gave the franchise 
a, a unique flavor yeah, um, amongst sure. you know studio horror franchises. So yeah, it's it's something I, I do like to do, and I think that you know in the last couple of years we've seen in the horror genre movies like Get Out um, or a Hereditary. I mean the, these movies that really do grapple very interestingly with social issues, right. and I, I feel like they have elevated the the perception of the horror genre in a way that I, I wonder if you have felt the same or perceived that it just seems like there is a increasing acceptance of what we used to feel like we were relegated to the ghetto. The and gutter, now, yeah, yeah, and no, now we're sure. being invited a little more into the cool kids you know, it, party. It, with Masters of Horror, that's where Joe Dante did an anti-Iraq war episode called I remember, Homecoming yeah. that was incredibly powerful. And this genre allows us to speak about social issues that you couldn't do in other genre without them feeling like preaching. Yeah. You know, and, and you can – you can tuck it into a story about monsters and outsiders and about fear that becomes something more than just a boo. Well, I think that's what's so great about the horror genre. You know, a lot of times people will ask me, you know, do you, you must believe in ghosts or something. <laughs> it's like, actually, no, I don't. <laughs> yes. I, but I believe in metaphors. And that, that is what's so rich about the horror genre is that you can – you can treat these things and put it th- through a metaphorical lens and and it can be quite interesting and dramatic. Well, you've also done other work in television with Channel Zero. Yeah. And how how did that come about and what do you think your focus in that show is? Channel Channel Zero was created by a guy named Nick Antosca who um who was also a writer on Hannibal season three. Mm-hmm. That's although I had met him before that through our mutual friend, Fiona Dorif, Brad Dorif, Brad Dorif, who is the voice of Chucky, his daughter, Fiona Dorif has been my leading lady on the last two Chucky movies. Right. She first introduced me to Nick. And then by total coincidence, we ended up in the Hannibal writer's room together and we really hit it off and enjoyed working together. And we did um, – Nick knew that I was a huge fan of The Fury, Brian De Palma's right, The sure. Fury. And we ended up writing a pilot for Fox a couple of years ago for a Fury TV series that oh. unfortunately didn't go forward. But <sighs> I was like – I was very excited about that. Um, but anyway, then uh, – Nick's show Channel Zero got the green light at at Sci-Fi, and he asked me if I wanted to work on it. And I said absolutely. Nick is a brilliant guy, um, and I, you know, Channel Zero has has been extremely successful, um, and especially critically. Right. I mean, I think I, I the last I looked actually season four, which I was not involved with because I was doing Cult of Chucky. Um, I think that was at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. He's a brilliant guy. So he asked me if I wanted to be a writer and a producer on Channel Zero and um, said, yeah. So really Hannibal and Channel Zero are my my only experiences in TV other than having written an episode of Tales from the Crypt yeah. 100 years ago. I directed one of those Did too. you? Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Um, so television – looms large for you again yes. now with the Chucky series. But Chucky's also being rebooted as a major feature. So 
<laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little about that. And are they at loggerheads with one another? And, and well, I guess that remains to be seen. You know, MGM retained the rights to the first movie. So, you know, they're, they're rebooting. The, they only have the rights to the first movie. So they're rebooting that. They asked David Kirshner and I if we wanted to be executive producers. We said, no, thank you, <laughs> because we have our ongoing, thriving business with Chucky. And so you Universal. can continue doing that without the involvement of MGM. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so they're making this without your involvement. Right. I don't think – you know, they didn't it, – it, obviously my feelings were hurt, you know, that I had just – done two movies which forgive me if i sound defensive but <laughs> like we're both like at 83 percent on rotten tomatoes yeah. so i felt like they're like even though they didn't get theatrical releases they premiered on netflix they were well regarded absolutely and i did yeah. create the character and nurture the franchise for three fucking decades right. so when someone says like oh yeah we would love to have your name on the film and it's like it it was hard not to feel like I was being patronized. Yeah. They weren't asking for your creative Correct. involvement. Yeah, they, were they just for they you just wanted our imprimatur yeah. of you know approval, which I I strenuously deny them. Okay. Um, and again, I don't like like I hesitate to say too much about it because I don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm belly aching too much because i've been so lucky with this franchise sure. for so long um but the producers of that movie or the producers of it the movie mm -hmm. it which of course was very successful but how would they feel if there was some legal loophole that allowed david kirshner and i to swoop in and make our own It movie yes. with our own version of Pennywise, Pennywise and say like, oh, but hey, guys, we'd love to put your names on it. <laughs> they wouldn't like it. I, don't I, I so. imagine they wouldn't like it. So that's how I feel. I don't I don't and I don't have any grudge against the, the cast and crew. I, you know, they're sure. taking a job. And yeah. since I'm sure we're all destined to meet up at some horror con yeah, in the future, no we, it probably behooves me to be civil. Um <laughs> But, uh, but you know, we're just it, among friends here. But but the thing is that like they don't the, – the, the people who are making that movie, they don't know how that's going to affect my livelihood. I mean yeah. I hope – you know, I still like do other things other than Chucky. But I think I've demonstrated that it's not just – it's not just a paycheck to me. This is – or David. You know, this right. is very personal to us. This is like we're a family and we have – worked with the same actors and a lot of people behind the scenes for 30 years. Yeah, 30 years of your life, your professional life and personal life tied up into Chucky. And MGM screwing with that potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so it's hard not to resent that. But you're in a unique place where it's a place of of justice and vengeance in a way because <laughs> you get the tv series yes. that will be an ongoing yes. uh, affair tell me a little bit about how you are approaching the series of child's play well i just from having worked on hannibal and channel zero i just really really enjoyed it and and i saw an opportunity to reinvent the franchise yet again and it's just something that I really do think that it's one of the things that has kept the franchise 
alive and thriving for so long is that we've reinvented it in different ways by making it a comedy and then back to horror. But the sheer storytelling real estate that doing eight to ten episodes gives us will allow us to delve into characters and relationships in a way that we're never afforded in just a 90 minute movie. Right. That's really exciting to me. And so we're going to, we're going to be able to explore different avenues with different characters that are among fan favorites. Mm. You know, a lot of times people will say, Oh, I'd love to see, you know, how, what's Tiffany's backstory and what Tiffany and Charles Lee Ray. And what about Glenn and Glenda? Just all these different avenues now we have a way of exploring all of this, and that's really exciting. But I'm also excited about inviting new voices into the process. I mean, one of the things I really loved about working in television was the social aspect of yeah. it. Because, you know, when you when you write features, it's so damn lonely yes. and terrifying. <laughs> and so, like, when I first came to work on Hannibal, it was my first, first experience with the writer's room. And I'm like, wait a minute. We come – every day we come into a room with a group of other like-minded horror fanatics yeah. and we talk about Hannibal all day <laughs> and we get paid for it. This didn't seem like work to me, yeah. you know? And so like that aspect of it, doing that with Chucky seems really fun. And, and I, and I am really excited about inviting other very talented writers to come into it and see what they will bring to it at, yeah. at this stage, I think is a really exciting prospect as well. That's great. I can't see, wait to see where it goes. And Don Mancini, thank you so much for spending time with us here. Thank it's you for a having pleasure. me. It's great. Thanks. Thank you. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 